Welcome to Teach the Word. The topic today is In Christ. Let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that through this uh, Bible teaching, you might help me and those who listen to better understand what it means to be uh, united uh, with you, to be in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, the uh, topic uh, is sometimes referred to as union with Christ, but um, I use the phrase in Christ because that comes up so many times in the New Testament in a variety of uh, contexts, like um, dozens of different, you know, different authors, different places. Uh, let's just look at a couple. For example, First uh, Corinthians, beginning of the letter. Uh, chapter 1, verse 30. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The book of Ephesians has this in Christ, in him, dozens and dozens of times, multiple times in, in every single chapter of the book. Uh, book of Philippians, early on in chapter 2, which is about uh, Christ humbling himself. You've got it again. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affliction, affection and mercy. So you got in, if there's any consolation in Christ. Where? In Christ. So what I wanted to do uh, is just go through Sep to start with. That's the topic. I'm, I'm getting it from this phrase in Christ, and, and it's referred to frequently as the believer's union with Christ um, was talked about. But... I want to go through uh, a handful of metaphors that the Bible is using to sort of describe this phenomenon of the believer being in Christ. Um, one of those metaphors is the believer is, is united with Christ like a husband or a wife is united with her husband. So that relationship of wife to husband is like the relationship of believers, usually, it's, a, it's usually a collective believers to Christ. Uh, so we could look at uh, those analogies. Uh, basically, what's, what's the verse in Genesis chapter 2 when God instituted marriage is, is what is quoted in these passages. That's how we know that, that that's the analogy that's in mind. And that, that uh, verse is Genesis 2, 24. So we'll start by reading that. And that is, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That gets quoted many times in the New Testament, and uh, we'll, we'll, I'll show you a few instances in how it's talking about our, uh, the believer's position with Christ in those contexts. So go back to Corinthians, where we just were, Corinthians 6, uh, 16 and 17. Or, uh, yeah, 16, 1 Corinthians 6, 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? 
For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. There he is quoting Genesis 2.24. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside his body. So the, the believer, he's talking about the believer. This, in this context, it's, it's actually the individual believer, not the church collective, is joined with Christ, like the mar- like a man, a wife is joined to her husband in marriage. That's what he means about being in Christ. That's an analogy he's used for the believer's relationship to Christ in Corinthians six, one Corinthians six. But if you look in other places, like in Ephesians, where Paul's actually talking about the topic of marriage, and then he, he, he Ephesians Ephesians five, he's talking about the church collective rather than individual, like in Corinthians six, Ephesians five. Uh, 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So there you have the believer's collective union with Christ in analogous to marriage, just like the believer individual union with Christ was analogous to marriage, joined together with Christ or being in Christ like marriage, a wife joined to her husband. Uh, Jesus also quotes this uh, verse in Matthew 19, Genesis uh, 22, uh, Genesis 2.24. So if you go Matthew 19, verse 5, you'll see Have you not read, he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So this this is Jesus' teaching on marriage, but I think it gives us insight into um, kind of the the meaning of us being joined together in Christ, or being in Christ. It's, it's a powerful bond, right? What God has joined together, let no man separate. That's, the, that's what it means to be in Christ. That's a powerful analogy. Yeah. Marriage may not be the best analogy, say, for an American where, you know, divorce is very, very common and uh, marriage isn't, uh, isn't a, a, a highly honored thing. It's not, certainly not viewed as permanent. But it's important to look at the context where they're using this analogy of marriage to talk about in Christ. Marriage is, uh, this is the context. Christ is setting the context in Matthew 19. It's, it's a fixed thing that can't be undone. So the believer's union with Christ is it's permanent, is the idea. Um, just like marriage is permanent. There's other analogies. So that's, that's a, we're going to go through a handful of analogies. So there's one, marriage. Uh, the believer or the believers collective, both, both individual and collective, are united with Christ like the wife is united to her husband in marriage. Then again, another analogy is the human body. Everybody has a human body, so this is an easy one to grasp. Um, there's actually two analogies going on here with the human body. One is that Christ, the, the one I want to focus on, the New Testament uses the human body analogy a lot. Uh, it's used in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 to talk about uh, kind of like spiritual gifts and how every one part needs the other parts. And so 
the church is a body and you know one might be the eye one might be the ear one might be the foot everyone else needs each other that's that's a different analogy than body analogy than the one i'm trying to point out that that kind of illustrates what it means to be in christ the the analogy about being in christ is where christ is the head and the church is the body so it's an analogy of like how the body is connected to the head and the head is sort of the executive command center of the body and the body falls what the head kind of dictates that's the idea that's the analogy that's being used to show us what it means for us as the body to be in christ so uh, it comes up a few places, uh, Colossians 1, let's start there, uh, simply because I think that might be a good verse. Colossians 1, 18, let's see what it says here. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in all things he may have the preeminence. So there it's collective. It's the church and the head, and Christ is the head. The vast majority of these kind of references and illustrations are uh, about the believer's collective, not individual believers. I think that 1 Corinthians 6 may be the only instance of singular individual believer being referenced. Um, jump forward, that's verse 18. Let's jump to uh, verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. There you have the church being Christ's body. Um, and then jump forward to uh, chapter 2, verse 19. And not holding... Uh, let no one cheat you out of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So that's a pretty good picture of the idea of the body analogy illustrating union with Christ, or being the believer being in Christ. we got to be connected to Christ because what happens in Christ... There it is. Holding fast to the head, that's Christ, from whom all the body, nourishing, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So that's where nourishment comes from. That's where growth comes from. That's where connection comes from. All right. So we've had marriage. We have the human body. Uh, then the uh, a third uh, analogy is a, uh, a building with Christ being in the marriage. He's the head. In the uh, the body, he's in, in the I mean, sorry. In the body analogy, he's the head. In the marriage analogy, he's the husband. And in the uh, the building analogy, he's the chief cornerstone or the uh, the most important stone that's kind of holding everything together. And if you pull that stone out, the building collapses. Is the idea of the chief cornerstone. But uh, we see this analogy um, in Ephesians and in Peter. So that's Paul and Peter using it. So let's. We'll start with Paul, Ephesians uh, 2, 19, and, uh, 19 through 22. And there, there we have, um, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. 
having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. So there, there's the, the idea of growth, even, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, and the strength coming from the chief cornerstone. Peter uses the same kind of analysis, language in, in um, uh, where are we? First Peter 2, uh, starting in verse 4. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you are as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is as it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, he is the stone which the builders rejected. He has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they are also were also appointed. So he's quoting from the, the prophets about uh, Christ being a chief, the chief cornerstone or a stone that's going to be rejected by the builders. That's the, uh, the Jewish religious establishment. They're the, they're the, they're the one, leaders who reject the stone, Christ, but he's, he's becomes... He's rejected by them, but he becomes the chief cornerstone of the church, right? So that's that's three analogies. You got wife, or we're talking about believers being in Christ, right? So what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, the New Testament gives us pictures of it, analogies to help us see it. We're looking at them, a handful of, of them. Marriage with Christ as the husband. Uh, the body, the human body, with Christ as the head. A building, a stone building, with Christ as the chief cornerstone. Um, and then there's there's more. So let's see here. Uh, so we got, uh, okay, uh, house, uh, not not a physical building, but a, uh, a household, as in like there's many members in a household. This is like a Greco-Roman household, a little bit different than an American household, but a household where there's many people, uh, lots going on. There's lots of servants, there's uh, lots to be run and managed. Perhaps even uh, part of the household is in a state where you know uh, stuff's being produced, whether it's you know, some kind of crop. You know, so so it's a it's a massive enterprise. So the household and who's and Christ is the father, the patriarch. Uh, in this analogy, and where do we see this? Uh, several different places, actually, um, in uh, with with different authors. Uh, Paul, as well as Peter, and the author of Hebrews, whoever he might be. But um, let's look at, we can start in Romans. Romans 8. Okay, Romans 8. Let's see here, verse, uh, how about verse uh, 14. Really battling the sun. It's horrible camera filming conditions. Uh, 
For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, for we may be glorified together. So there, the believer's position in this household, this Greco-Roman household, is portrayed as an adopted son. Uh, it's important because I'm told, although I don't have any documents, you know, I don't got any sources to point to, but I've been told that uh, Greco-Roman adoption was permanent. In other words, there was no way to get rid of a null on adoption. It was it was final and permanent. Uh, of course, I don't have any. I don't have any documents that say that. I, I just I heard preachers say that, so I'll pass it along. Um, Galatians. Let's go to Galatians three. Still, Paul uh, gives us a different picture of this this analogy. Galatians, Galatians, Galatians. Oh, oh I went too far. Okay, Galatians three, uh, verse twenty three. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, but you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master to of all but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of this world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born of the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that he might receive us, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So, uh, adoption made possible through Christ's death. Um, movement from slave to son is the idea. We are sons in the household of God, sons and daughters, rather than slaves. Um, uh, hmm. All right, let's let's read read more about Greco-Roman households. Let's go to a, the the Timothy letters. Uh, Timothy three. Verse uh, 15. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Hey, that could be, maybe that's it. That could be thought of as a building too, but uh, I was thinking of it more in the sense of a household. Uh, let's just jump to Second uh, Timothy 2, verse 19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone... I lost my spot. 
who na- and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee the youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith. All right, so that goes on. But there, the household analogy is talking about the, all the different items that would be in a house, how some are used for, for uh, honorable purposes and some for dishonorable purposes. And he's saying, you get to choose what kind of vessel you're going to be in God's house. Cleanse yourself from, from sinful things. Uh, but you're a part of the house, is the idea. Uh, Hebrews, let's just look at Hebrews. We can, we'll do one in Hebrews and one in Peter, and then we'll move on to the next analogy. So... How about Hebrews uh, 10, 21? Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. So Jesus is here, he's viewed as the high priest over the house. Uh, Peter there's other passages in Hebrews like that. It was Hebrews 10, Hebrews 3, 2 through 6. Uh, we also see Timothy, or uh, Titus. Paul's using it again at the beginning of Titus 1, 7. But let's look at 1 Peter 4, 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will it be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? All right, so you get that that multiple people are referring to the authors. Paul, Peter, the author of Hebrews are referring to the church with this analogy as the household of God. Um, and I think it's an analogy that gives us an illustration of the what it means to be in Christ. Uh, like Just like the marriage analogy, Christ's the head, we're the bride. Just like the body analogy, Christ's the husband, we're the bride. Just like the body analogy, we're the head. Christ is the head, we're the body, just like the um, building analogy, we're the stones, Christ is the, we're the building materials, Christ is the chief cornerstone, which if removed, collapse happens. Then the household analogy, Christ is the patriarch, we're the household members, the sons, the daughters, the important or, or dishonorable instruments or vessels in the house, however the analogy works. So there's a little, there's multiple household analogies, but Christ is the patriarch is the idea. Um, and we're parts, we're a member of the household that's in Christ. What other kinds of analogies do we have? Well, we've got uh, branches joined to the uh, stem. Christ is the stem, uh, or uh, and then the believer is the branch. So we see this in uh, a couple places. We'll, we'll first go to John. John 15. In John 15, the, the plant is a, is a grape. Um, so you have, uh, I'll read 1 through 5. I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch, this is Jesus speaking. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. So there you have a branch analogy, just like a 
a branch gets all of its nutrients from the stem or the trunk, we get all of our everything from Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. Uh, the, there's also an olive tree analogy in Romans. Uh, that's a vine in John 15. Romans 11 has the olive tree. Uh, let's see. Uh, and if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them become a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I may be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise you will be cut off. Also, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So here the analogy is is grafting. So being put into Christ is like a graft being put into the rootstock. Um, I don't know how much I don't know much at all about grafting, but my pastor. Uh, studied it for a while uh, and he does a series about the, the, the apple orchard he's using he's basing it off of the vine and the branches but he's using apples because that's the fruit that grows in northern New York you know, there's a bunch of commercial apple orchards in northern New York not commercial vineyards so he always talks about how the graft is the strongest part if you're going to try to break a branch it, it's never going to break on the graft because that's stronger than any other part of the branch it'll always break somewhere else so that's an interesting tidbit about grafting. But, um, so now we've got five, huh? Marriage, body, human body, uh, the uh, building, stone building, the uh, household relationships, Greco-Roman household, and we have, uh, this last one is a plant, the organism, where nutrients are supplied from the root, from the stem to the branches. And then a... Uh, the last one here is um, a little bit different, but it, it shows what it could what it means to be in Christ is plants being intertwined by the roots, so that if you pull one plant up, you have to pull the other one up because the roots are enmeshed. And we actually see this through the the choice of the words that are used in Romans uh, five for uh, or six, sorry, for uh, baptism. So let's just just read that. Uh, about baptism. What shall we say then? I'll start in verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that by gra that, that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, if we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So the phrase that's translated united together in his death is, is used agriculturally. We've been planted together with him so that our roots become intertwined. And you see this actually elsewhere in the New Testament, this being used uh, to talk about plants intertwined by their roots uh, in Luke 8. Uh, in the middle of a parable Jesus is giving, 
you just read that so you get the idea of what it means to be intertwined by the roots with this Greek word underlying united together with Christ in Romans 6 5 also underlying uh, Luke 7 or Luke 8 7 uh, where are we wrong page but same Greek underlying both uh, And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. So this is Jesus' parable of the sower. Sower sows seed. Some of his seed is united together with thorns. And what do the thorns do? Their roots choke out the believer. They kill the believer. That's different than being united with Christ. If you're united, if you're, what does it say? What was it? Eight, seven. The thorns sprang up with it. Well, if you spring up with thorns, you get choked out. But if you spring up with Christ by being united in his baptism, planted with Christ rather than planted with thorns, it's a different It's a different thing. You flourish is the idea. I don't know a whole lot about plants, but I know that uh, there's a book that uh, my dad was talking to me about called The Secret Lives of Trees or something like that nature. I think, I think that's what it was, the secret lives of trees. But it was all about how trees actually communicate with one another through through their root systems with things that they get secreted into the soil so that, you know, like, say there's a pest in one part of a forest that's attacking trees over here. Well, through the root system and what's getting secreted by the roots and absorbed by other trees' roots, these trees over here know, learn about it and start preparing for it. So that's like a good intertwining of the roots you know then there's poisonous one like i know i know a little bit about roots like i know there's uh, like some roots of the what is it hickory species like um you know uh wall black walnuts or uh maybe even pecans any any of that speed that 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 branch of family of, of tree nut trees uh um what else uh yeah the hickories they're all part of that. Their roots kill, they secrete things that kill other roots. So if, if you plant like apples or um, a garden with things like, you know, tomatoes and whatnot, too close to uh, roots of um, hickory species trees, they secrete poison that kills off root competition. That's like being planted with thorns. It's different being planted with Christ. It's more like the secret lives of trees where strength is drawn. Good stuff comes from being intertwined at the roots. All right, so that's six, a handful, handful plus one of uh, ways that uh, we as believers uh, are being depicted as being in Christ in the New Testament. Six different analogies. Those You can meditate on those analogies, I would hope, and get like, uh, you know, let it kind of run through you what it, what it really means that you are united with Christ. You know, uh, it's like, Husband, a wife being united to her husband. If you're if you're a bride, if, you, if you're a wife in a in a marriage relationship, you probably know a lot. You you know what it means to be united to your husband, so you can have a better understanding of what it means to be united with Christ. Everybody has a human body, and we all know what it would mean to be severed from our head. Right? That's what it means. If if we, before we were in Christ, once we were dead, really dead, as dead as a body without a head. But then, united in Christ, we have life spiritually. Um, so we had marriage, we had the body, we had the building. Anybody who's a, who's a builder into construction, this is an analogy that, that 
you you can see tangibly because you work with building materials and you know what it means when something is supported or it's not, right? That's Christ. Christ is the supporting thing. Living a life not in Christ is a precarious building that's going to collapse. Um, how about uh, family relationships? Anybody that works in social sciences, um, the uh, you know anthropology, psychology, uh, you know caseworkers, you see what it, what it's like when you have a household that has the patriarch, that has Christ, or you see what it's like when there's a household where the children, the members of the household, are not united to the, to the patriarch. That's the problem if the church is not united with, if we're not in Christ, we have all the problem, all the social ills that come from broken families. If we, if we, if we, but we don't have to, we don't have to have those because we are united in Christ. That's what it means. Um, what else? So where we did the marriage, body, building, family structure. Um, oh, plants. Everybody sees plants all the time. So this one's great. When you break off a leaf or a branch, it dies. Christ is the life juices to us. We're that branch broken off. And then roots. A little bit more complicated, I think, roots. because, But roots intertwined for good, not for bad. Uh, so those are, those are the six. Um, at least in Christ. What does it mean for the believer to be in Christ? Well, it means something like what's communicated by those analogies. Now, big point that's kind of important here is that um, the the participation here is um, is uh, well there's a few points one is that it's collective all except for uh, that first Corinthians 6 marriage passages that's the only individual one every other one it's collective so it's it's not me as an individual believer united with Christ in all these passages it's me and my brothers and sisters united to Christ. So it's a collective thing. So that's important. It's worth noting that I may not truly, really uh, reap the benefits or know what it actually participate in what it really means to be united with Christ by myself without the church. I mean, we do have the one instance in 1 Corinthians 6 where it's, in, where it's the believer singular. So yes, you can reap the benefits. But I would say... Probably not as fully. Certainly not the family idea. Uh, so that's one thing. Another kind of important thing is, um, big idea, is that uh, there's, a, there's a position. It doesn't mean when we're united with Christ that we share Christ's position. It means that there's, there's still uh, uh, some subordination going on. Like, you know, I mean, let's just look at, at all, all these analogies. Um, what happens? The idea, at least in, in the way the Bible portrays it, is that the, the wife yields to her husband's leadership. The head is the executive command center of the body. The, uh, you know, the structural integrity of the building depends on that stone, the, the chief cornerstone. The patriarch runs the Roman household. The stem supplies all of the nutrients. Um, so you get the idea? So there's a... Being in Christ doesn't mean we have Christ's position. You know, that's kind of important because the Bible doesn't just use these analogies. It also describes um, the believer's union in Christ in, in different ways, one of which is, is um, you know, we're, we're united with Christ in his enthronement. Like, we're enthroned with Christ at the right hand of the Father. 
So, like, if you look at uh, Ephesians, where this comes up. Uh, Ephesians, what is it? Uh, two, right? Yeah. Ephesians 2, 6. Um, but uh, we'll start in 4. But God, who is rich in his mercy because his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together uh, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ, that in ages to come he might show us the exceeding riches of his mercy and his greatness towards us in Christ. So Christ raised from the dead and he's enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And where are we? We're enthroned beside him, that we might sit, where are we saying, sit uh, together. Verse 6, he's raised us up together, so that's where union, is another way that it's portrayed is we're together with him in his resurrection, right? And made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, enthroned in Christ Jesus. Well, that doesn't mean that we're Christ Jesus and we have all the authority uh, that the king of the universe has. It means that we're in Christ Jesus and we have as much authority that the king of the universe has that, uh, he, that the king of the universe is going to share with his children. That's the idea. Um, so it's kind of, I think it's an important point to make. You know, uh, that they, uh, the last thing here is, um, I just want to end with this really, is that it doesn't mean... Uh, Another thing you could say by this is, is union with Christ is you could you could go kind of into Eastern mysticism where you'd say uh, that we as as the believers are become in a sense divine uh, because we become of of the same nature as Christ who is divine. Uh, so no uh, no for several reasons, but let's just look at the passage that would probably confuse people the most, and that's Second Peter. Uh, one four, where there's a um, participating in the divine nature clause. Second um, Peter two four. Where is that? Um, in regards, is that right? No. Uh, two four. Coming to him as to a no. That's not it either. That's his first Peter. Okay, so that's my problem. Second Peter two four. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, no, well, that's all right. Something wrong with my reference, huh? It's one four. All right. By which, all right. So, grace and peace. So we'll start in verse two. Second Peter one verse two. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Partakers of the divine nature. See that clause? Well, if you think about the doctrine of union with Christ, being in Christ, you could think that you become Christ if you are partaking in the divine nature. I suppose you could, the, the, this, this verse in Peter could be interpreted to mean that you take on qualities of deity if there was no context of the Bible in which to read it. But the entire context of the Bible, you know, there's a, there's a problem. For, for, for one, there's the immediate context of the verse before it. Uh, As his divine power, verse 3, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. 
by which we have been given exceedingly and great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. The idea here, pretty clearly in context, is is that um, we are holy. We become we, we we have what we need to live life in a godly way, life and godliness. Right, that's partaking in the divine nature, being godly. Right, living uprightly, not 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 being corrupt sinning and conniving, right? So you got immediate context. But then if if you you were confused by the immediate context or you thought maybe it wasn't that clear, or maybe you don't agree with my reading of that immediate context. Well, we have the entire the entire appendum appendium all the books of the Bible which which are a framework for interpreting and, and the Bible explicitly condemns uh, polytheism. So there's no there's no way that, that you could interpret union with Christ or being in Christ or participating in the divine nature to mean uh, that you become somehow divine or take on divine qualities because the Bible throughout condemns it. And uh, the law, the Mosaic law, it's condemned. Deuteronomy 4, 35 through 39. In the prophets, it's explicitly condemned. Isaiah 43, 10, 44, 6 through 8. And the New Testament epistles, it's condemned. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, 1 Timothy 2 through 5, James 2.19, all of that, uh, all of those um, explicitly condemn polytheism. So you can't interpret union with Christ meaning that we take on divine nature. Basically, the believer's union with Christ kind of frames our journey uh, of, of being coming like Christ in our ceasing, becoming more holy, less sinful. Um, the ultimate goal is to be, to have Christ's perfect moral character. Uh, the ultimate goal isn't to become God, to become deified and have his, you know, the, the, the be a, a power and of duking it out like, a, you know, Zeus and, and whoever, the, the Roman gods. No, the goal is to become holy, to have Christ's moral character. I mean, you see that Romans 8, 29, 2 uh, Corinthians 3, 18, uh, Lots of verses, but I don't have time to read them because I, I went over time, so I have to go. Thank you for joining. Maybe we come back next week's video and sort of revisit this topic and wrap up loose ends that I, uh, you know, left out and rushed over. Thank you for listening. Bye.